Today, we're talking to Sean from Algolia about the future of AI in search. You're listening to Joel Beasley, Modern CTO. Dude, this is going to be a blast. Where are you calling in from, by the way? I'm in Ireland. I'm in Dublin. How did you get to Ireland? Ah, that's a, a, well, pretty short story. I fell in love with an Irish girl. (laughs) Oh, that's easy enough. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. But I'm also, I'm an Irish American, so they call me a plastic patty here. (laughs) Okay. Uh, Were you born in America? I was born in Virginia, but to a very kind of like Irish American household, very proudly Irish. So when I married an Irish girl, it was pretty easy and fun to move to Ireland. Such a great country. Oh, that's pretty cool. So I was hoping we could start out by you just telling me a little bit about, you know, what Algolia does and what you do there. Yeah. So a little introduction. I'm the CTO of Algolia. Um, Algolia is the uh, leader in search as a service. So we've been around for about 10 years. Um, We started off very much as developer first, uh, API first uh, search platform. And when you think about the internet, there's some foundational pieces of infrastructure that every single kind of site or application needs. Search is definitely a foundational part of that internet infrastructure. And so if you're starting a project or you've got a company, you can allow us to take care of all of your search needs. We're actually, um, we've grown pretty large. We're almost 2 trillion requests a year on the platform, which makes us the second biggest search engine in the world behind Google. So one out of six internet users will interact with us every month on one of the websites. Um, As I said, we're infrastructure, so we sit behind the scenes. So you wouldn't see our name or our logo anywhere but we power 17,000 different websites. Um, A lot of the e-commerce infrastructure um, obviously is powered by us as well. And we're going through, uh, you know, the same type of AI transformation uh, that the rest of the industry is. And obviously AI is incredibly powerful when it's applied to search. And we're starting to see some of the first like really incredible applications of this kind of new generative AI uh, applied to our search product at the moment. So would a competitor be Elasticsearch, something like that? Yeah, so Elastic is a kind of open source product that you can deploy yourself. So if you're a developer and you want to run your own AWS, you can download Elastic and uh, run it. At my previous company at Zalando, which is one of the uh, Europe's biggest fashion marketplaces, we built and ran our own Elastic cluster. But it takes a lot of expertise. It's pretty complex um, to be able to scale it up and run it yourself to get all the configurations right. Um, So if you're an extremely advanced user and you actually want to have, I think we had a team about 20 engineers running our search uh, engine at Zalando. Um, that's definitely one way to go. Algolia is very much more like the Stripe, you know, where it's like seven mm. lines of code, you install us, it's super simple to get set up, very powerful, uh, lots of great dashboards and UXs in the background. So kind of business users and non-tech users can also kind of configure and optimize it. That is very cool. Yeah, because like I said, my background was software engineering and I haven't done it in about four years since the podcast took off. So I'm not in it every day doing it, but that type of technology so that you don't have to build search from scratch was just an amazing advancement that we had in our industry. It was just absolutely beautiful. Yeah. So um, before I joined Algolia, I actually ran the European payments engineering team for Stripe. Okay. And so um, I was really excited joining Algolia because we have very much that same type of like developer first ethos really, really easy to use product, taking all the complexity away from a kind of complex, a high performance product. And um, similarly, I remember when uh, I first got started uh, coding on Algolia, I had something up and running in like 10 minutes. It was incredible, a uh, very powerful search engine with a great experience in the back end. So 
it really is the type of product for builders and developers who want to uh, get up and running fast. Did you know David Singleton over at Stripe? I did know David. Yeah, David was a phenomenal CTO, uh, very inspiring, and uh, also uh, an Irishman, just like the founders of Stripe. Mm-hmm. So it was yeah. very exciting. We were uh, Stripe's European headquarters were here in Dublin, so we got uh, to see a lot of the founders and David. They used to come over and uh, visit us a lot. Yeah, I got to do an interview with him a few years back, and I was personally a huge fan of Stripe because for me, in my experience, that was the first time I had ever seen the developers have such a huge influence on the business decision of, of something like payments. Yeah, and you know, Stripe and Algolia have a very similar kind of ethos when it comes to building products. So both are um, very much a product-led growth kind of mentality where the easier the product is uh, to use for a startup, the easier it is to onboard, to integrate, to get all the UX components, to have the dashboards, right? These are things that typically you would find smaller, fast-moving companies value. It turns out that very large enterprises value the same thing as well. And so, you know, when we were working with Amazon, they used to say, like, we actually prefer using Stripe because our engineers can actually finish the project way faster rather than to optimize for the, like, 0.01% of cost that you might save going somewhere else. And so, um, you know, definitely um, something I believe in quite strongly, having great, easy-to-use products helps everyone. So you founded a company before as well? Tell me about that. Yes. Yeah. So I, I, when I left university, it was the height of the dot-com boom. And um, I was obsessed with being an entrepreneur. And so the first 10 years of my career, um, we started uh, three companies. One of them called Masabi uh, is now one of the largest uh, mobile train ticketing companies in the world. But back then we were building it as a video game, mobile video game company. And so I've been through that kind of, um, uh, you know, tough startup after the dot-com bust, it was very hard to do a startup, uh, particularly we were doing it out of Europe where there wasn't a lot of accelerators or VC capital uh, or interest in funding tech companies. I call it my 10-year MBA because just, you just learn so much when you're hustling and on the ground. There's a certain benefit as well not having access to large amounts of capital because you really have to focus on the product and the customer very, very early. And you really have to do everything that you can to start generating revenue to bootstrap yourself. So, you know, very much a kind of early hustling three bootstrap companies. Um, And uh, I do think it was kind of the greatest part of my education. I can say I fully agree. When it's your money and your paycheck and feeding your family that's on the line, you learn real fast. Yeah. How the market works. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Absolutely. So were you still at Masabi when they made the transition to ticketing? Uh, no, they actually, they pivoted after I left, but it was, you know, really great to see um, the the company again, having to figure out the market and having to figure out what's going to work and what doesn't work. And it was only once they pivoted into train ticketing that they managed to raise venture capital and start to scale up the business. So it took a while. I think um, we did mobile gaming for a while, but it was about a decade too early <laughs> before the iPhone and the app store. And then I think for a while, uh, worked on kind of like mobile casinos and marketing and, you know, just hustling to try to find, you know, a product market fit somewhere. And then ultimately you went from that, those startups to Stripe or were there some things in between? Yeah. So I actually um, then uh, went to Google and it was funny. I said to my wife, I'm like, listen, you know, if this startup thing doesn't work out, um, my backup plan is to go and join Google. 
And she was kind of laughing, going, well, that's some backup plan. <laughs> um, but it turns out that Google at the time also really valued people who were entrepreneurial and had hustle and knew how to build things. So I remember this is 2011. My first couple of years at Google were, you know, the place was growing so fast. Everything was on fire and chaotic. And so for someone who likes to build things and is a little entrepreneurial, there was no shortage of problems uh, to solve and places to add impact. What type of work did you do there? Search? No. So I actually started off um, in, uh, in the Google office here in Ireland, which was part of the um, ad sales team. So I got involved in a lot of, um, actually, I was one of the few people with a computer science background in the office. So I was able to figure out a lot of the big data and how to tap into it to help enable our sales teams. Uh, so I kind of became the data nerd and I started our big data team uh, inside the business organization. But then I quickly found out that um, when you get a reputation for being entrepreneurial, that there are some other crazy parts of Google that are even more entrepreneurial. <laughs> and uh, I got a call about a secret Google X research lab project and was uh, drawn out to go and uh, we moved to San Francisco and got to work down in uh, the Google X labs with the self-driving cars and Google Glass and the balloons. And uh, I worked on... Uh, with about three or four MIT graduates and their professor on uh, building the, the world's first drone delivery uh, business. Is that so still in existence or was that proof of concept? Yeah, so within a couple of years, we had the first commercial business up and running on uh, the University of Virginia's campus. And um, the, uh, the wing team, as they're called now, are one of the major uh, alphabet letters inside Google. So they graduated. And uh, I think they just celebrated their 250,000th drone delivery for real customers. So they're operating in a few sites in the US, uh, I think Australia, Finland, a few other countries. And what's their name? It's called uh, Google Wing. I didn't realize, I've heard this before, right? You obviously, you've seen in pop culture and TV and cinema and stuff, this idea of drone delivery. But I thought it was something that wasn't, making a lot of progress, but apparently it is, and it's commercialized and it's actually operating in certain places. So now yeah. we have to go learn about it. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And, um, I actually, when I moved back from the States, uh, I bumped into, um, a serial entrepreneur here in Ireland, a guy called Bobby Healy, and he had a business plan for starting a drone delivery company in Ireland. And so, uh, mm-hmm. I kind of joined his board and have been helping this company called Mana and they're now, they're delivering 200 uh, deliveries a day in a village just outside of Dublin in Ireland. That is so neat. It, how how do you feel as a technologist and a consumer? Things are progressing so fast in so many different verticals. It's my full-time job, Sean, to keep up with this stuff. Yeah. Every day I learn of a new company or a new, you know, oh, you know, last week, oh, here's this new company I've never heard of. They have 100,000 employees. And I'm like, this is crazy. This happens on a daily or weekly basis. It's just all moving so fast. What do you make of it? Yeah, well, you know, a lot of times the in the early days, things move very fast from a demonstration perspective. So if you take like self-driving cars or even the drone projects, um, you know, you can show progress very fast in the early days. And even like ChatGPT right now, like huge progress, very early days. But um, it actually takes a very long time to get past the kind of safety and value levels that you need to commercially scale something out in mission critical systems. So, you know, the Waymo cars are on the streets of San Francisco now, and it's been, I'm going to say like 12 years since they first had their prototypes out, and they're still very limited. 
again, with the drone delivery, you know, we've been at this for, you know, 10 years now and, you know, we're still only in a small number of cities and, you know, they're still working through the safety levels. So like a lot of technology, you know, we, we overestimate how fast it goes in the short term, underestimate its impact in the long term. So why did you go from entrepreneur to then working on the teams? Or can you compare and contrast the differences in being an entrepreneur or leading a team at a large company? Yeah, absolutely. Um, so what I, what I figured out, having done early stage startups, um, I was with Google during that kind of like really super fast growth phase. And again, I joined Stripe during huge explosion of growth during COVID. But then, you know, at Google, I was there about seven years. And what I realized is that, you know, uh, in terms of like the S curve, when Google became more mature and there were like 100,000 employees, uh, velocity became very slow. Um, and there were a lot of politics, a lot of inertia. And so um, I just kind of learned that the sweet spot for me is finding a company that is past uh, product market fit and ready for like very fast growth. Um, and being able to kind of put a lot of the structure and processes and things in place to enable a company that's growing very fast is actually the thing that I enjoy the most and I get the most value out of. I find with startups, they're extremely fun as well. Um, but by definition, during the first couple of years of a startup, you don't have a product with a lot of customers and you take a lot of detours, right? And you can end up in a place where obviously failure is pretty high, uh, when you're doing a startup. And so, um, you know, as much as I love working with startups, advising them, I'm an angel investor as well. Um, I don't know whether I go back and do a startup again, because I find that phase can be a little bit frustrating when you're trying to figure out what the product is and you don't have a lot of customers. I, I, I love the growth phase because you have like a lot of customers that are getting a lot of value out of your product. And every day when you turn up to the office, you know what you do is going to have an impact on a ton of people. And so that's very rewarding to me, knowing that the work that you do has a big impact. So you like being useful. I love being useful. <laughs> and I, you know, you know, like the S curve as a company grows, I like the vertical bit, right? Um, when yeah. it gets a little bit too mature and boring and, you know, it slows down. Um, I am not as useful at that stage. And when it's too early, I'm probably not quite as useful either. I completely understand. Yes, I I can see how that you 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 basically just picked the best part and said I'm going to spend time here. <laughs> yeah, and I also think from a risk return basis, like working in that vertical piece, you get the biggest risk return opportunity. You know, once a company is already Google sized, like you know, there's not a lot of risk anymore, and the returns are lower. And when you're in the really super risky stage, where you're like, you know, kind of nine out of ten companies won't make it to a round or something, the risk is very, or sorry, the returns are very high, but the risk is also high. So. I like that post-market fit, uh, product market fit stage where I think the risk return opportunities are the best. I've got questions about search stuff. Search Perfect, stuff. let's do it. So how do you refer to the Googles and the Bings? What type of search is that? What's the words that you use? Oh, so that would be like consumer search or internet consumer search. Consumer search. Yeah, okay. you're searching the internet. Do you participate in that type of search or not? No, so what we do is we power businesses search functions. So um, we're there to sit behind the scenes and enable other companies to build great products that are powered by search. And typically the, the data that we search through is kind of private data from companies. So it may be like the product catalog that an e-commerce company is selling on their website, or it might be like, you know, in a messaging app, all the messages that are going through, or we power like uh, file, file management and discovery 
uh, experiences. We do site search for your site. But no, our goal is not to index the entire internet and try to make it available for consumers in a B2B, B2C experience. Instead, we offer B2B SaaS software that powers search across the internet. Okay. If you could do me a favor, you reach out to Apple iMessages team and Evernote and tell them that they need yeah. your product. <laughs> Absolutely. Those are two things I regularly interact with. And for the life of me, I'm like, with all of my engineering experience and everything, I can just not get the stuff I need when right. I need it through those search systems. Well, I, here, yeah. so here's the craziest thing. Um, you know, there were like dozens of uh, search companies back in the late 90s, right? And the technology that they used was basically, you give us all of the web pages, we'll look at all the words on the web page, and then when you type in a search with a keyword, we'll literally just go through all the web pages and figure out which ones use the words the most, right? So we call this keyword matching. You know, you put key, you put words into the search, it just matches the pages. And to be honest, that's how most search experiences are still powered 20 years later. Like you go to Google, you go to Apple iMessages, et cetera. It's just looking through all the messages and finding, you know, matches for the word. And as an experience as a user, it's very frustrating because word matching has a lot of limitations. It really doesn't understand the concept of what you're looking for. It can't handle uh, words that have multiple meanings. It doesn't handle typos well, typically. Um, and it can't find things if the word isn't there. And so this is still a huge limitation on e-commerce sites. It's still a huge limitation on Google, to be honest. And this is what the exciting breakthrough that we're going through right now is moving from this like 20-year-old keyword technology uh, to using AI to really understand the concept and meaning behind the search terms, and then actually being able to understand documents, web pages, product catalogs, and be able to understand the concepts and meanings behind them, regardless of the words that are being used. That is pretty interesting. Yeah, because one of the things, like Google, they do some of that contextual type search, so it will make inferences and whatnot, and then you'll use that, and so you're you're training your brain on using those types of Google searches. Then when you go to a search in a, just a straight matching system, it's, you're not trained on how to search on the straight matching system. You're trained for it to have some understanding of context. But when you sit back and you're watching the consumer space explode with AI and, and Bing does its thing and Google does its thing with Bard and you're watching this back and forth, is this just like a beautiful situation for you guys in your search world where you're just watching <laughs> these companies innovate and you're cherry picking what you want and how to integrate it into your product? Yeah, well, um, look, I think there are two different things that you have to think about in terms of search. One is the use case where I actually want to retrieve real items from an index. So, um, for example, in Google's perspective, you want to retrieve actual web pages, right? Because there's a web page you want to go to to get your job done. Um, in the case of an e-commerce site, you really want to be able to retrieve a specific product that is on sale that you can buy today. Um, and so we call this part of it a retrieval. Now, what people are experiencing with ChatGPT is something called generative AI. And what generative AI does is it goes and reads all of the web pages. And what it tries to do is it tries to create a new response or a new answer that is going to answer the question you ask it. Um, so the response that it gives you is something that's entirely novel and new, never been done before. But it's not actually a real thing, right? There's no web page that says what the response is that you can go to. 
or imagine you're in an e-commerce store. Like if they were to generate a product for you that doesn't exist, it wouldn't be very useful. So I think that's one of the um, things that we're really interested in is how we can use both uh, retrieval um, and uh, leverage a new technology called vectors, um, which is the way of understanding human language and matching it, these concepts, rather than just matching keywords. We're using this both on retrieval and um, using generative AI to help assist shoppers, for example, in e-commerce sites, find products that they want through a conversation where a chatbot can guide you through the experience. I think it's uh, you have to differentiate sometimes when it's AI creating something new for you, like an answer, or whether it's retrieving something that exists in the real world. And so this is called, I was using the word context, but this is called vector-based search, essentially. Yeah. So when you go to like an e-commerce site that's powered by us and you type in a question or you type in what you're looking for, um, instead of matching the words in that query to the words in the product catalog, uh, we turn everything into a vector. And a vector is just like a mapping of the concepts that you're asking for into this like high dimensional space. And then we can go and search for other products that are mapped as vectors nearby. So we do something called vector search. And these are the hmm. same vectors that um, ChatGPT and large language models like it and generative AI are using. But we're using these vectors to match items um, using uh, natural language rather than generate something new from the vectors. That's pretty interesting. I, and so, and then it will search for its neighbors. That makes complete sense to me. Yeah, so if you go, I mean, um, one of the crazy things is, is that these language models work um, in a language agnostic way. So you could go to a web page and you could type in, let's say you're looking for a sweater. You could say the word sweater, pullover, jumper. All of these are words that mean the same thing in English. But you could also ask it in French or in German or in 50 other languages. And all of those concepts would match to a very similar vector in vector space because the concepts are so similar. And then all of the articles, regardless of their language um, or regardless of what words are used, if they are like a sweater or a jumper or pullover, they map to the same vector space. And then you can kind of search around for similar items. So a vector space isn't language dependent? It's not language dependent. So all of a sudden, you know, if you're an e-commerce site, you can serve customers in 50 different languages, which as a, as a European over here in Europe, we have 27 languages in the EU. And I know it's pretty tough to get your website to work well with all of them. So if it's not language dependent, what's the data representation of a vector? Yeah, so a vector is actually um, typically like 500 or 1,000 decimal point numbers. So they're very, very large. And this is what the breakthrough has been. So for we've, we've known the vectors are a good representation of concepts for about a decade. But only in the last few years has the size of these language models exploded 10x, 100x to what they were before. And that explosion in size, not only the vector space, but the training data that we can feed it. Basically, the whole internet is fed into these large language models to train and it can figure out all of the relationships between words and the context that they're used in and be able to group them into various like clusters in this vector space. And uh, it's a very powerful way of representing human language and human concepts. And it's, as I said, it's like language independent. Hmm, all right. This is my processing information phase. You it's <laughs> you got, crazy. You got me thinking. Oh, yeah, because you're saying that you've got these vectors, which are 500 to 1,000 decibel numbers. They're 
collected in these neighborhoods or these groups of, of them. And so if I'm representing a sweater, it would be represented as this vector of these 500 to 1,000 decibel numbers, right? Yeah, absolutely. And nearby would be other concepts that are similar to sweater. Okay. The crazy thing is, is you can add vectors together as well and subtract them and do math with them so that you can actually combine them um, with multiple words to make new concepts. If I build a language model on my infrastructure with the same training data that you build the language model on your infrastructure, are our vectors the same for a concept? Yeah, if they're trained on the same data set, um, then they the they would be the same. Yeah. And you know, we're okay. we're language model agnostic, so we can plug in any of the language models. The actual so cross training... language models, they're still gonna be the same. Oh uh, no. So every language okay. model has its own vector space. But we can okay. plug in like OpenAI's models or Cohere's models or you know Google's models. There are like dozens of companies building these foundational language models. And you can use different language models for different use cases. Some are tuned, for example, like e-commerce, we have one that's tuned to that. And we can also fine tune them as well on top of the base ones that uh, are provided. How much do we understand about how this works? Is there any magic in it at all, or is everything completely understood point to point, end to end? So we conceptually know how they work. And you can actually um, read like the original word to vector paper that Google published, I think it was like a decade ago. And there's a very simple algorithm. You can play around with it and to see what vectors are generated and how they can be added and subtracted in the training data. So the concept behind them, the basic concepts have been fairly well understood and are understandable and you can try it out yourself. The hard bit is then, hey, how do we get like trillions of web pages all over <laughs> the internet? And how do we feed this into a language model that's gonna end up having, I don't know, a hundred billion parameters and uh, is going to be very, very large to train on. And that's why these language models cost like, I don't know, 10, 20, 30 million dollars to train each time. And why uh, companies like ours and any, you know, we're not building new foundational models from scratch. They're a part of the tech stack. We can like fine tune them and like refine them based on our own customers' data and the use cases we're looking for. But as a base model, Understanding human language is something that's kind of, uh, kind of coming commoditized part of the tech stack. Okay, so OpenAI is absorbing this cost of this thirty million dollars of computational power and engineering time to build a base model of understanding, and then they're making that base model of understanding available to us through an API or, or yeah. whatnot. And then we can fine tune that model. So we can start adding and subtracting vectors based off of the content we send it. But help me understand this. And I know this is you know probably beyond the scope of <laughs> what you're expecting today, but it's something that I've struggled with. And maybe if you don't have the answer, you could just tell me where I could go to get the answer yeah. or I should be curious. I have this trouble of understanding I did some research and I found out that like if you want to boot up your own language model on Amazon, it's going to take 48 gigs of memory and it's going to cost you about $900 a month is one of the cheapest ways you can do it. Okay. Yeah. So in my background comes from software engineering and my best experience with servers and things like that are servers that are hosting websites and that type of technology. But what's happening with this model? Is that one instance of the model? And if you modify anything in that instance, anyone that's interacting with that instance, 
gets the modification or how are they splitting these up to where you can have your variation and I can have my variation without each one of those variations requiring a independent boot up from the entire thing? How does that work? Yeah. Well, first of all, there are a lot of language models out there. There are open source models. There are models that have a hundred billion parameters and there are models that have like, I don't know, a million. Um, So depending on what your needs are, you can find a whole selection. So, you know, you figure out your use case, figure out your speed, how much compute you want to spend, how big a server you want up. Um, or you could just use APIs and access a hosted version of it. But then you do fine, t- fine tuning on top of those models. You don't change the model. You just add a little layer on top of it to fine tune it to your specific use case. So if you want to create, I don't know, a, a lawyer language model, you would kind mm-hmm. of like take a base model and then fine tune it on some legal text. Uh, or in our case, we fine tune on top of like e-commerce data. So there's definitely like a, a, a stack and a lot but of how are variety. they doing it multi-tenant? How are they doing it in a multi-tenant way? Well, the language models are stateless, right? So okay. there's no there's no memory. Like when you when you put something through it, it just gives you an output. The fine tuning is where you can then update the model to improve it. But the actual inference, like the serving of those language models, is a stateless function. That makes more sense. Okay. And one of the, so the hard thing about vectors and the reason why they've not been scaled out more across the industry is because like a lot of uh, research, um, they're very powerful and they're easy to demonstrate the value of. But um, we have spent the last two years trying to figure out how to bring them to Algolia scale. So two trillion searches a year um, mm-hmm. and you know, sub 20, 30 milliseconds latency. So like a lot of these technologies, it's seriously compute intensive. The vectors are extremely large to store in memory. And therefore you have that kind of like the triangle around affordability, quality, and speed, right? Pick two. And so um, it has been impossible to scale up these large language models to very high scale QPS, very low latency. What's that? What's, what's, that? what's QPS? Oh, queries per second. Okay. Or requests per second. Um, and to do it at a reasonable cost. So um, they haven't been rolled out widely in production yet until um, until now. So at Algolia, we have come up with a new representation for vectors called hashes. Um, and these hashes are about a tenth the size of vectors. So it's a vector compression technology. And we're able to store these hashes in a standard database format. Um, and search through them at high speed, just like you would search through a normal data structure in a database. Typically, the vector uh, search algorithm requires a special tree-like structure. So all the vectors have to be arranged in a tree or a graph. And in order to search through them, it's very expensive and very slow. So um, Algolia launched Neural Search, which is um, uh, the hashing technology on our own platform. And we're now able to offer like very high speed, high scale, reasonable cost vector search to all of our customers. And some of the amazing results that we've seen is, is that when shoppers are able to be understood, not matched with keywords, but truly understood language wise, we're seeing, you know, 20% plus increases in conversion rates, like the first day that we switched this on. Oh um, my goodness. Companies must love insane. that. Companies yeah. love it, and, and it's, it's amazing because we can A-B test it for them ahead of time. So, uh, you know, the sale is pretty easy when you can show them the A-B test and be like, do you want this or not? <laughs> but <laughs> I, it it's also just goes to show you that um, shoppers have high expectations now of wanting to be understood. Oh, yeah. 
there's a long tail of queries on websites that are being underserved right now, where customers come in, they ask for something specific. And by the way, the more specific someone asks for something, the more likely they are to buy it if you can find it. But, you know, typically um, the keywords, if you put in more than two or three keywords, it's hard to match all the records and it comes back and it's like, nope, sorry, we didn't find anything. And so what do they do? They leave your website and they go to a competitor site. Yeah. But, but now we can use the power of vectors and natural language understanding and these large language models to say, actually, we can't match those exact keywords, but we really understand the concept you're looking for. And here are a bunch of products, right, that actually satisfy what you're looking for even though they don't contain the same words. Interesting. Do you guys have a Shopify plugin? We do have a Shopify plugin, yeah. So we support oh, really? all the major platforms. Yeah, we've got a really big integration hub where you can bring data from uh, tons of different connectors into our platform. That is so cool. I was just, I made a new friend last week who built and sold a marketing company and one of their, then now he's working at the parent company that bought it. Yeah. And one of their core parts of their business is Shopify e-commerce marketing. And yes. when I was talking with him last week, my first thought as I'm talking to you is I need to call John and I need to tell him that this new search technology is, is, is existing and it's on Shopify's platform because that could help him serve his clients better. That's yeah, really we, have a, we, have a, we have a one-click installer on Shopify. So any Shopify <sighs> merchant can get up and running. And then, you know, the other exciting thing is, is you know, um, uh, lots of customers love the kind of seven lines of code dropped in, you know, search as a service experience. Um, but what we're increasingly finding is, is that there are a lot of very large companies who have data that is so big and is so integral to their operations that they just wouldn't be able to kind of send it to a third party like us and be able to host it on our platform. So what we're actually doing now is trying to figure out how do we bring Algolia and the power of this vector and hashing technology to people's existing production databases. So if you've got a Postgres database that's like, I don't know, a terabyte and it's running a big production system, we can actually like uh, install a plugin on your database and help vectorize and hash your entire database so that you can use SQL to get the power of this without having to hand all of your data over to Algolia or hand it over to Elastic or one of these other search platforms. Are you guys writing books on this or at least papers on it? <laughs> we are. We're working with some already pilot customers that are very large companies the type of companies that we've always wanted to work with, but because of the size of their data and how like critical uh, having it served in their own infrastructure is, we haven't been mm -hmm. able to work with them so far. So yeah. we, we kind of love this idea of having two products. One is like fully hosted, easy to get set up, launched, let us run the whole thing for you. Or if you already have an existing production system and you don't want to have to like duplicate your data, we can come to you and we can run it inside your existing databases. Which is the future. That's which, yeah. Yeah. Okay. So this vector hashing technology, did this happen within one of your teams or did it happen somewhere else within the organization? So we actually um, have been looking for the last couple of years um, at vector search. We've been had high conviction that vectors are going to be the future of search and AI. We went and talked to pretty much every vector database company on the market. And as we were doing this, we really, uh, really got conviction that the main problem was not the vector technology, but how to scale it. And so a lot of the vector databases, you get started with them and you either get a very big bill at the end of the first month, <laughs> or you find that it hits a wall when you try to get a data set too big. And so we actually found a company in Australia called Search.io, and we made a small acquisition last October. 
uh, they had pioneered this hashing technology and we were blown away by it when we met the team and saw the, the results in production that they were able to produce. And so um, what was very exciting is, is that you know, within three months of uh, the acquisition, the, the small team at Search.io in Algolia had partnered up together and been able to release a uh, kind of a beta and now GA version of this hashing technology inside Algolia for all of our customers. Why did they make it? What problem were they facing? So uh, the problem that they were facing is the problem everyone faces when they start getting um, start working with vectors. So I remember at Zalando in 2017, we had a huge production elastic service and we were trying to get vectors enabled for search using one of these plugins. And as soon as we got vectors um, added to the database, the size of the database and memory just exploded and slowed down every search so much. And our AWS bills got very large. And we just realized like, this is not production ready. We're, we're just not able to use the existing vectors and all of their a thousand floating point numbers and <laughs> very high memory in a real world environment. And so um, that's the problem that they saw as well as they were heading down um, the kind of vector search first avenue, trying to build for e-commerce. And that's exactly the problem that we found as we were trying to build it as well. And it's the problem that we saw in the vector database market when we went and met with everyone and tried to understand their technology. Have you met the guys over at Chaos Search? Uh, no, guys? I haven't. No. I don't know if they might be a customer of yours already, or they, but they do something similar to this. They're really smart, very collaborative, really cool human beings. And so whenever I find two cool people, I always like to introduce them, yeah, even if they're in the same, awesome. same area. But yeah, they were pioneering some... They would take all the content from within an organization. If you want to find, you know, yeah. content that's within your organization, it would search across all of your assets. Like you'd hook your yes. drop boxes up to it. You'd hook, and they would help you figure that out. Is what I believe they, that they were doing, and they were just really cool people. And so I figured we got to let them know your stuff exists because yeah. you know they, they have their own competitors, and you're an infrastructure type technology, so they might be able to leverage your vector compression to excel against their competitors. Yeah, absolutely. And um, one, of our, uh, one of our big customers has actually built a product exactly like that. We're powering uh, enterprise file search and enterprise intranet search product for one of the biggest players in the industry who've kind of chosen us to be the, the search backend. So, oh, that's um, so cool. Yeah, no, we definitely have um, some pretty large customers and large data sets coming through uh, like that. But I mean, I, I hear you. The, the problem is so frustrating. I call it the document swamp. It's like everyone's <laughs> producing stuff across the company and, you know, that's all somewhere in your Google Drive or somewhere in your Dropbox or even worse, somewhere in your Slack messages. And it's just so hard to find. And each one of them has a different search engine, right? They each work slightly differently. Well, yeah. and this is where ChatGPT, I, I want to be able to ask questions at work to a chatbot and it's going to come and like take all of the knowledge that's been created across the company and actually kind of create an answer for me and give me the links out to it. Do you have that today at Algolia? Well, we are, we're working on our um, generative AI products. Um, we're calling it conversational commerce. So we're first looking at the uh, commerce industry. So uh, when you go to a website and you have a problem to solve, like I want to go camping this weekend or I'm looking to run a marathon and you want to get expert advice from someone, it, this kind of conversational bot will talk you through the different products, the different brands, you know, we've got uh, a very cool demo with an electronic store where you can ask like, you know, what is OLED versus LED? Like, you know, this is my budget. Which brand should I buy? You know, I want to connect it to my Apple TV. 
like real expert domain questions that you would talk to someone in a store to help you solve. We think this is a very powerful um, influencer and guide to give people conviction to buy a product that they might have, mm, you know, I don't know whether I should buy this one. Is it really going to work with my, uh, you know, my configuration or is it really right for me? So um, we think that's a pretty exciting area uh, around generative AI. There are so many amazing things happening. I can tell OpenAI to talk like a specific person. I can say, sound like Elon Musk or sound like the greatest marketer yeah. in the world. I can have them talk different personas. The intonation, the way that the individuals talk, that's represented as a vector. Is that how it works or no? Yeah, so the um, on the generative side, what the model is doing is it's trying to predict the next word to add to a sentence based on the question in the vectors that were provided as the question. Um, and obviously, when you provide context in the question, that context then gets represented in the vectors. And so that the first part of generative AI is the encoding. So same what we do is we encode it into vectors. But then when it becomes decoded and tries to like predict the next word, it will use, you know, talk like Elon Musk or, you know, give me a, a poem like you're a pirate or something. It'll use that context from the vectors when it's trying to predict the words to output from the model. So someone's intonation of speech can be represented as a vector? Well, it's so a vector is like a very highly complex thing, right? Um, and so when you put in the context, the question into ChatGPT, and you're like, answer this question, answer it like Elon Musk. Yeah, the vector space, a thousand dimensions can capture Elon Musk and ask this question. It has all of these kind of elements to it. These kind of like thousand dimension vector spaces are pretty much infinite in their like complexity where you can place ideas and concepts. So yeah, it, it is kind of represented and encoded in the vector. That's so interesting. You could take the entire way that you think and put it into one of these that is really interesting. If you really want to have your mind blown, read up a little bit on how crazy high dimensional space becomes. <laughs> it's Just high dimensional space in AI high, or yes. in language models? So, so we're used to like 2D is like two dimensions is like a graph with two dimensions. 3D is the mm -hmm. world we live in. Um, but as soon as you start thinking about what is like a 500 dimensional space or a thousand dimensional space and what is a, what does a sphere look like or a uh, a rectangle or something, it becomes pretty crazy. And they have visual representations, I'm assuming, that you could, I yeah. could see visually representative of what a 500 dimension space looks like? Well, it would be mapped down into two dimensions, but yes, Correct. they could yeah. they could describe some of the characteristics and properties of it. For example, um, I think like a sphere in 500 dimension space has almost no volume at all, which is counterintuitive, but... <laughs> What's the most like philosophical, heady type things that you've extracted from working in this industry after watching these models exist and actually using them hands-on about the nature of our universe? What do you think we'll find out in 100 years? Oh, well, I, I, first of all, um, the one thing that this vector space really um, makes me think about is that all of our human brains have a very similar type of encoding system we all actually think very much alike, but the human language is how we've been able to communicate brain to brain, right? So if you and I want to exchange concepts, we can't connect our brains together. We have to have an interface, which is human language, in this case, English. But all of these interfaces have been, you know, kind of developed simultaneously, all the, you know, hundred something languages of the world. 
but they're all kind of like mapping to the same concepts in our brains. And so the idea of language is a kind of interface for brain to brain exchange and communication and how similar we all are. It's really quite a powerful idea. Yeah, I think about that quite often. So before I started the show, I had a, a split in my path. I said, well, I could either develop, I get into AI and develop personality type software. I was imagining that I could give Alexa a personality and I could install a different personality. This was, you know, seven, eight years ago. And then I was like, or I could do the podcast. And I said, the reason why I chose the podcast as the business is because if I was off by two or three years, you, I would be broke. But yes. if I did the podcast, at least I'd have relationships if that didn't work out, right? So I, I risk mitigated there. <laughs> yeah, and ti- look, timing and luck are everything in technology. And so, you know, when my first startup was a mobile gaming company. We were 10 years too early. It was exactly the right idea. <laughs> we totally had the intuition about the product, but, you know, 10 years too early and 10 years is a long time to be wrong before you're right. So, um yeah, timing is a, an important part about all of this. You were 100% right. Timing is so important. So when I was thinking about that, to your point of what you just said about language being an interface, I was thinking about how when we communicate, like what we'll ultimately remember from this conversation in 90 days is maybe the main topic of it and whether or not we really liked each other or how the conversation general, how we felt about the conversation. Yep. So this this interface is really like, I think of words and my, I was being very introspective and curious about how this stuff works when thinking about creating these personalities for this AI. And I was thinking, my brain's constantly checking with my my heart, essentially, of how do I feel about these words that are going to be yeah. coming out? And then that goes back and forth until I come up with the good enough words to get out there. And so <laughs> I was thinking that it's just this abstraction. That's when I realized that this language is just an abstraction. And what we really yeah. are, we're, we're just constantly exchanging these feelings. Where that breaks down for me when thinking about a way of the world is when you need the information and the detailed words to do hard sciences. And I'm like, that's where that breaks down. So it's almost like behaviorally and communication-wise between each other, there's that aspect of it, the feeling aspect of it. And we use the hard words to get to the feeling aspect of it. But then on the hard sciences, the hard words become very, very important. They have to be very specific. Yeah, and th- but that's just highly structured language, mathematical formulas and scientific stuff. But you're right, we both have a vector space in our head. And in a week's time, we're going to remember the concepts. We're not going to remember the words. The words are only there to exchange concepts between our brains. I'm going to write that down. Sorry. Yeah, our vector space is probably very different, by the way. Um, <laughs> <laughs> so we don't have the same vector space, but we can use language as a, as a common interface. And by the way, that's why ChatGPT has been so explosive. Because this is the first time that humans have a natural interface, their language, that they can use to access AI and for AI to respond with an interface that they understand, right? So it's the actual interface of natural language in and out of these models that's the most powerful piece of the technology. It means everyone in the world can access AI now. All you have to do is be able to speak language. I wonder if one day we'll find out that the concepts of everything already exist. It's just our ability to discover them. Right, because like, gra- like yes. they could be all around us. All the answers could be all around us, and it's just our ability to figure out how to discover it. Well, that's what that's uh, your nine-year-old uh, baby is doing, <laughs> wandering around <laughs> discovering concepts. I, I always laughed. I was like, my kids are basically like AI models in being trained, <laughs> and it's a lot of trial and error and a lot of experimentation, and then they finally like grasp the concepts and store it in their memory, and then can build the concepts up on top of each other. 
I have had that same conversation before. And to add to it, it reminds me of in the 1960s when you would see these, I'd see these pictures of the 1960s where you have these rooms, the, a computer is the size of a room and you can see the transistor, you can see all the parts, it's very clear what's happening. Now it's all condensed and hyper, super processed, uh, processorized and everything like that. But with kids, it's human behavior on that scale. You can yeah. see anger and joy and you can see behaviors as if you were standing in that computer room, but when they're adults, it's almost like it's all compressed, right? And yeah. you have to <laughs> you have to be an expert in it in order to take apart that device. Uh, yeah. So and yeah, we're we're finely tuning our models as adults, whereas <laughs> they're building the foundational models still from scratch. That is yes. <laughs> well, Sean, this was an absolute pleasure. As I become more intelligent in this space and get better questions, maybe we'll have you back on next year and we can talk a little bit more about the amazing advancements you guys are making. Yes, thank you so much for having me on. This has been a really, really fun chat and we'd love to come back again. Thank you so much for doing it. We made a podcast. How do you feel? Fantastic. It was great fun. Thank you so much for listening. And if you found this episode useful, please share it with a friend or a colleague who you think would get value from it. And if you have topics that you'd like to hear discussed on the podcast, either add me on LinkedIn or send me an email, joel at moderncto.io. Every time I get an email or LinkedIn message, it absolutely makes my day and inspires me to keep going.